Welcome to the Autism Outreach Podcast. I'm your host, Rose Griffin. I'm really excited for our episode today. And before we get into that, I wanted to let you know about some free live webinars that I'm doing later next month, all about how to help your toddlers and preschool age students start communicating. I cannot wait to share this information with you in my private practice and really across my whole career, I have really enjoyed working with younger students who are struggling communicators or who are waiting for a diagnosis of autism and who have autism. And so I'm excited to be able to share how I've helped my students start communicating. So make sure that you visit me at abaspeech.org to sign up for one of my free live webinars that are taking place in September. I cannot wait to get into this episode today. We have a wonderful chat with Jackie Bosley. Jackie Bosley is a wonderful professional that I have actually worked with probably for most of my career in a bunch of different capacities. We have worked together in two different non-public programs. At one point, she was a teacher of a classroom and I was a speech therapist. And so we got to know each other really, really well. Um, She has started her own center, Thrive Early Learning Program, and she focuses on early intervention. We have such a great talk today about how to help support parents of newly diagnosed children. We also talk about using applied behavior analysis in a way that is really focused on the child. And so we talk about some naturalistic groups that Jackie uses with the students that are attending her program. She talks about her morning meeting and she talks about how speech therapy and occupational therapy are a major part of her overall comprehensive program for her students. Whether you're a professional or you're a parent of a child with autism, this is such a great listen where you're going to get some really actionable tips and strategies that you can use with your own child, with your own team. I'm really excited for this chat today. Let's get into the episode. You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast, a podcast full of ready-to-use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech, a speech therapist and board-certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use in your next therapy session. All right. Thanks for joining us on episode 36. We have a great episode today. We have with us Jackie Bosley from Thrive Early Learning Center. Thanks so much, Jackie. It's so nice to have you on. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be with you. And we go, me and Jackie go way back. I'm talking way back, probably 2003, 2004. So we have been in it and kind of have had these careers where they keep intersecting, right? And um, we have worked together. A couple of times now, yes. I like to steal a word you said before. I I think I've heard you say that you're seasoned. And I love that. I like that. (laughs) It's a little bit more flavorful than the choice words I usually give myself. 
so I like yeah, that. <laughs> absolutely. We are seasoned. Yes. And I think at one time I was actually a speech therapist in yes. the classroom. Yeah. And we worked in a non-public program, actually yeah. two of them together. And at mm-hmm. one point you were the teacher and I was yeah. a speech therapist and that was loads of fun. Yeah. Yes. That was yeah. a learning experience. and <laughs> For both of us. Yeah. And, and loads of fun. But I think that those jobs and my career path has kind of led me to where I am today with you too. And I'm excited mm-hmm. for you mm-hmm. to kind of share your journey. So for those of you who you are new to, can you just share a little yeah. bit about your journey, kind of how you started out in the field and yeah. where you're at today? Yeah. So as you've mentioned, professionally started doing this in 2003, but even a few years before that, I'd been working in home programs for families that had toddlers on the autism spectrum. And I was working as then we were just called like home tutors today. That'd be more like a behavior technician position. And so I had been doing that really since 2000. And then 2003, I had gotten a position as a teacher um, in a, in a non-public school. And I really was working. I actually had a uh, background in general education, pre-K through three. And the building director of that program had brought me on to help prepare this classroom of students because they were all students who had really were at the tail end of their therapy adventure in the non-public setting. And they were getting ready to go back to public school. And so the director wanted somebody with a general education background to help them sort of begin that model of what it would look like from a curricular perspective and also in terms of like more small group and whole group instruction versus a traditional one-to-one model. And I worked there for a number of years as a classroom teacher, as um, an administrator in that program. And then I actually left and I went to public school for multiple years as a special education supervisor, which was a really great experience in terms of the shift from non-public to public school. It really, I say, was probably my most growing years because I had to really become more inventive. When you're in the clinical environment and you can use all the tools that the environment lends itself to alone of just having so much control over how to manipulate your curriculum and your materials and your environment and the staffing, making it one-to-one or whatever you need, you go into public school and it's not like that at all. And so you really need to get creative. And so I think um, from, again, from an educational and behavioral perspective, those are probably my biggest growing years. Um, So I'm really appreciative of that experience. And then I left and we crossed paths again. You and I, we were working in another non-public program together. And there I was working as um, one of the directors of their day school, as well as a behavioral consultant out in the field. And so I, I loved that program. I was there for a number of years. And then I decided that I really wanted to get back to my roots of early childhood education. And so I left there to pursue opening my own program, which is an early intervention program. So we serve our youngest right now is two. We serve kids ages as early as 18 months through the kindergarten year. Currently, I'm serving my youngest is two through six years old. And our primary methodology is still applied behavior analysis. But I always kind of say that with an asterisk because we tend to follow a much more educational model here at my program. It's called Thrive Early Learning Center. Then that traditional sit down at the teacher table and do discrete trial, which you might find in a more clinical ABA program. So our program has daily circle time and daily centers. And we have some sensory exploration and gross motor time and outdoor play. And, and we do all of that while providing really intensive the intensive therapy that our kiddos need to recuperate some of those skills that are behind. And then we also offer speech and occupational therapy during their school day. Well, that's great. And I think it's so nice to be able to focus on that age 
age group too, because it's such an area of growth. It's such a time where kids are able to learn so much. And I feel too, and I know we're going to talk about that, but being able to support the families, I feel like, you know, for any, any client that I work with, I always have the families involved, but I feel like when kids are potentially newly diagnosed or they're waiting on a diagnosis, that that's such a time where parents need so much support. And I love that you offer speech therapy too. I actually just had a question on Instagram mm-hmm. and I'm like, oh man, I need to like run with this and do a whole podcast episode <laughs> on it later. But a parent had asked, you know, should I do speech therapy or ABA for my child who's been newly diagnosed with autism? And, you know, obviously mm-hmm. I really, really love ABA type programs that see the value of having a speech mm-hmm. therapist mm-hmm. and a speech therapist mm-hmm. that is there because I know that you can work so cohesively together. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's part so of our important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So actually, even when, so again, our, our speech pathologist and occupational therapist are here in house. So therapy happens during the student's school day, but our behavior technicians stay during the related service time. They don't leave so that that they're under the model and expertise of the, you know, related service provider. So in this case, speech and language pathologist. And then that way, when they're done with their, you know, 60 minutes a week, so we usually break that up into thir- two 30-minute sessions since they're little. Um, but during regular programming time, then throughout the week, our staff can still run that programming, again, having it, had it modeled for them and in the way that... So it really turns language acquisition, we feel like, over much more quickly because it's just worked on all the time since we have those providers in-house for us. So it's, it's of real value. I think that's so great because I think sometimes speech therapists don't always understand their role when a student mm. is getting ABA. And mm-hmm. I really feel like all the non-public work that I, I've mm-hmm. done, I had to quit that just because my own business mm-hmm. got so busy. But I really feel like when you're a speech therapist in that type of program, that you are really operating very differently than a lot of traditional speech mm-hmm. therapists. Because, And I do like that clinical aspect because yeah. I do yeah. have great rapport with the people that I work with within a public school. But in a clinic-based setting, the fact that you are you know, expecting the staff to stay there during related services yes. is really nice because it just sets that expectation. Everybody is very gung-ho, ready to yes. help embed those um, you know, skills across the learner's day. And one of the mm-hmm. things I really loved about some of the public non-public programs we worked in together is that idea of a shared daily data sheet, which yes. seems so simplistic, but I do a lot of yes. training on that because most people don't do that. And what that really means, if you're new to me, is you know, if a student has speech therapy goals or OT goals or academic goals, all the goals are on one shared yep. sheet. So everybody can kind of see them see and then one or one staff can, you know, support yes. those goals. And 100%. I, just, I know that seems so simplistic, but I think it just kind it's of so important. It, all. Yeah. it does. It's so important. So it, it just goes to, to, again, to speak to the point of consistency is key. And again, just more exposure, right? So obviously the more for any of us, the more exposure you have at doing something that's new, the better you're going to get at it. And again, if it's being done consistently across different people in different environments, the faster that skill is going to take wind. So 100% agree with you on all those things for sure. Absolutely. So I know today we're going to talk a little bit about early intervention. So can you give us some tips or strategies or talk to us a little bit about how to support parents or kind of the process of navigating a new diagnosis? I know that some people may be parents themselves. We have a lot of parents who are listeners. And then some people might be professionals thinking like, well, how do I support people through this time, which is obviously, I'm sure, an overwhelming time. Yeah. I think that that's just the key word right there, right? Is that it's overwhelming. For some families, you know, this may be 
their first child or it's their first child that has a disability or that, you know, something's not lining up the way they were expecting it to or the way their other kids did it. And so every story that I hear a family, how they get to diagnosis always seems to be a little bit different, right? Whether again, it's their oldest and it's their first child or whatever, or whether it's another child along the way. And so it it just seems to hit every family, no matter where they're at in their journey. It it just takes you back and it's overwhelming. And I think part of what is so overwhelming about autism is again, it's sort of a diagnosis based on report, right? So either a family's having providers, whether it's a school provider or perhaps a pediatrician or somebody's sort of flagging them, like maybe they're not doing the things that they need to do. Or it's a parent saying like, my other kids didn't do this, or they're not talking yet. Or again, I, I didn't, I got flagged on this pediatrician screening. And so, but it's really not something we can medically test for. We can't do blood work on it. We can't have a scan. There's no confirmation. It's really based on putting these pieces of a puzzle together over time to say, what are the symptoms that the child's demonstrating and, and how often have they are they doing them or how, how long have they not been doing this marker, right? And so as we finally get those pieces that come together, you're already in a journey because perhaps you started and it was like, oh, they weren't talking on time. And then it's like, okay, and now they're doing, having some of these behaviors that again, maybe my other kids didn't do, or perhaps, you know, the school flagged me that the other, you know, typical peers in the classroom don't do these things. And so you're getting these pieces put together over time. And I think that that can often be a bit overwhelming in the sense that, you know, you think you're going to do one therapy and you're going to get a lot of relief and then maybe something else pops up and now you got to do another therapy and I have to do another therapy. And so even the road to diagnosis can somewhat be, you know, challenging and emotionally overwhelming. And so what I say to families is, and now of course you're relying on all these experts, you're bringing all these people in and what they have to say about your child. So what I first say to parents is take a deep breath. You're still the expert on your kiddo. You're still the one who knows them best. You still know their likes and their dislikes and how they are communicating with you, whether it's with words or not, and what their behavior looks like when they're you know, communicating discontent or something like that. So you're still the expert because I think parents feel immediately like they have to take a back seat and they have to listen to what all these other people have to tell them that they need to do. And that part's overwhelming because now all of a sudden, now it's sort of what we did with COVID, right? Where parents became teachers. It's like all of the sudden your parenting role shifts from just being mom or dad or caregiver or whatever to now also being speech and language pathologist, <laughs> occupational therapist, behavior analyst, and teacher. And so you have to do these things all the time. And I think that's overwhelming. So I think parents need to take a deep breath. And then I think they need to try to go to the experts, whether again, that's a pediatrician or perhaps they've already started some speech and language services or something like that. But those providers that you trust and have them start to provide you with a little roadmap of where do I go next? What is your next recommendation? And then go step by step from there. Yeah. And I think there's probably just... I I mean, what I would imagine from just knowing a lot of autism families is that once you do get a diagnosis or you're thinking that might be the diagnosis, that just like me and you, if we had a symptom about something, we probably go on the internet and then we start start looking for information, which can be really, really hard. Mm -hmm. I always tell parents, steer clear of Facebook groups because yes. if you say the wrong thing in a Facebook group... Isn't that the truth? Yes. It's just not... there. Facebook is scary for asking for information because people are not very <laughs> kind 
no. in social media land. So you really do have to kind of trust your gut. And I always say, you know, from a analytical perspective, you have to trust your gut with your providers and do your research. Yeah. And if your child is not happy going there, if your child is not making right. progress, if they're not letting you in the sessions, you know, yeah. I think that would be really good information for people. Like what are some indicators of a good program? You know, that the right. their family involvement, that the yes. parents can come in and observe. Yeah, and, yeah. I think transparency is key. I always tell parents when they've kind of made their way to us. And, and honestly, we get a lot of referrals from like pediatricians offices that we have like established rapports with. And so the, the parent will call and say, oh, my pediatrician. So like, when can I sign them up? And I'll say, well, like, I appreciate that. And I love that. And thank you. But I think you should check out a couple programs because yeah. you still want to have, again, that's a double-edged sword because on one hand, too much information can feel overwhelming, but you also don't, don't just want to go in one direction and not give yourself some choice options. So when parents come through, that's something I always say to them is like, I'd love for you to come and see tangibly what we're doing here. Even during COVID, we were doing in-person tours for families so that they could see what it looked like. Cause there's a level of transparency of like, I want you to watch my therapist work with these children because your child may or may not be able to report back to you at the end of their session, how they're feeling. So you're, you're left by looking at, are they happy going there? Are they crying? What? And so again, we're trying to read these nonverbal cues. So it's really important for parents to get a, a feeling, a sense and have that transparency and the ability to talk to the providers and to not just get, you know, just, just a, a written note. Written notes at the end of a session are great. That's good, concrete information. Again, because you're watching the data as my kid making progress, but also just that human connection level of talking with the provider and, and really having a relationship with them. And then we offer Family First Fridays. So twice a month, we have families come in and they have options of whether or not they want to do a live observation of their child in therapy so they can watch that and get some training. Or they can just do kind of what I would call a parent-teacher conference and we go over all the data. But again, to keep their thumb on the pulse oh. so they feel like they're really involved and engaged. And I think that that really helps families in that early stage as well to see how do the experts and the therapists work with my child? What are what are the is the type of language that they're using to navigate through challenges that my child might be having or something like that? And and that really helps them too. So that's something our program offers that I think is a huge component that that's helpful for families. Yeah, you have to have that family involvement. I think with my own private practice at ABA Speech, I see a lot of younger students and typically see them in their homes, and it's just nice mm -hmm. because you can have that rapport with families. You can answer questions, especially right. of autistic students. Students, you know, there's mm -hmm. just so many questions like, should I go to ABA? What provider? Yeah. You know, can yeah. you talk to this person? Um, yep. This other speech therapist I'm seeing is working on XYZ. And, mm -hmm. you know, like there's some different methodologies mm -hmm. out there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, should I send my child to public school? And what's that going to look like for their schedule? Yes. There's just so yes. many different questions that parents have. It's just so much to navigate. And the one thing I know we were going to touch on is, you know, funding sources for therapy yes. that has to be a stressor as far as, okay, so my child has a diagnosis and mm -hmm. now they're saying we need ABA speech and OT. So, you know, how do families how do navigate that? that? Yeah. Yeah. Here in Ohio, I'll speak specifically to Ohio briefly. So I know a lot of your listeners are from all over the place, but here in Ohio, we have a wonderful assistance uh, funding source called the Ohio Autism Scholarship. So once your child is three and identified as a child with with um, uh, 
autism is their disability category, which oversees their IEP, you can apply for a scholarship here and it's not income based and it's there's no limit of how many scholarships are awarded. So um, there, it's it's really nice because you can apply throughout the year and then that funding source is prorated and that helps a lot. Now, in order to access that, you're waiving your right because it is a scholarship. They consider it an educational scholarship choice. You're waiving your right to participate in services in public schools. So you have to make sure that that's something you want to do. And you can hop on and off. You don't have to commit for a whole year or anything like that. But that is something you want to make sure you understand as you're applying for it. But most people now insure a lot of insurance. Um, there's a lot of autism services that are covered by insurance. And so health insurance is also a funding option for families. It tends to be on the early intervention side. So depending again where you live, um, there may be a cap on hours or reduced hours as your child gets older, but that's also a funding source. And then of course, becoming very familiar with what your school district offers in terms of their services beginning for early intervention, because that's a federal mandate. So, you know, beginning with age three, you want to start looking into what are the services that my public school is required to provide if my child has a disability. And because some parents might say, oh, I wasn't planning on sending my child to, I was going to do a private preschool and just enroll my kid in kindergarten. Well, if your child has autism, you may want to look at those early intervention services earlier and get them on on an IEP earlier. And the school district will provide that for you at no cost because it's a federal mandate for free and appropriate public education. Right. Yeah. And I always urge parents to do that too. Even if you're going to opt for private, I do Mm -hmm. think it's a good idea just because they do have to do all the standardized testing and you do get a lot of good information potentially from those providers. Definitely depends on your district and you know how your district is operating. Every district is going to be different. So, okay, that's really good information. That kind of brings up a good point too about assessment. So for early intervention, what is your model as far as what assessments do you do you guys like to give at Thriver? What do you have like an intake process that yeah. so it's it's pretty comprehensive. So we would do an initial intake and that really gives me an opportunity to I have the family there with me as well. So myself and I usually have either my clinical director or my clinical coordinator with me and we're we're just playing with the child. We're really allowing that to be child directed because at that point it's an observational state, right? If I try to sit the kid down and do some work and get some assessments cracking at intake, they're going to become upset. They don't know me. Mom and dad might be in the room. So they want to kind of crawl back to mom and dad and get over there. And so it becomes this give and take, and that can be a little bit stressing for everyone. So during our intake process, it's very child directed. I bring the families in on days that we don't have students here and they have a scheduled block of time and the child can really navigate every space in this building they want, pull out the toys that they want. It gives myself and my coordinators time to see what they gravitate towards, what they like, how if we transition them, how do they react to a transition if we're pulling away from something preferred. Mm. Just a lot of really great anecdotal and observational information. And I can also do that while gaining a lot of information from the parents, right? Some narrative background information, things like that. So that's our basic intake. Then once we start a student, then we'll begin actual assessment. So depending on the age and the level of the child coming in, you know, how much language do they have, their ability to tolerate sitting at the table, those types of things, I'll either use the ABLES or I'll use a VB map, which are two very traditional autism assessments. And they really assess sort of the same domains. Mm-hmm. Um, but the VB map tends to be for children who have a little bit more language. Mm-hmm. And the ABLES tends to assess more functional play, leisure, 
and their ability just to even identify items. So I like to use the ABLES for my kids who have more um, communication needs. It gives me a, a better understanding of where partnering up with our speech path, where our language programming can go. Because so much of, of the behavioral manifestation that we see early on is really due to the, the communication issues. So we always see that as a real top, top priority in our program as, as being to be addressed immediately. That's great. Yeah. No, I love both those assessments and use both of them. So that's really great. I know I do a lot of training with speech therapists and a lot of speech therapists don't feel that comfortable with those assessments. But I always say too, even if, you know, like, let's say you're a speech therapist and you're working with an outside provider and they've done a VB map or an ABLES R, it's really good information just to be able to try to understand the information mm-hmm. in the report because it can give us such great information. What happens a lot of the times when we evaluate an autistic student who's younger or a struggling learner is that they don't get a standardized score. And right. so then here we are yes. as a speech therapist and yes. you know exactly. we're not going to put requesting on there because most speech therapy tests don't even look at requesting, yep. even though it's yep. so important. And you know, not everyone is going to look at the joint attention piece, which mm-hmm. you're going to probably be picking up from your observation. And so then here we are with a standardized test that wasn't able to be administered. And then a student who doesn't really sit and you're like, where do I even go from here? I remember learning about the VB map. I mean, so long ago now, like maybe 10 years ago when I was down in Austin, Texas. And I remember thinking, this is just so comprehensive because it also looks at group skills. Like you said that you guys do like a morning meeting or, you know, something like that. And I think that's such a big piece of learning. Like every child may need some one-on-one instruction, obviously, Mm -hmm. but a big part of being able to learn academically as you go through school, if that's going to be your least restrictive environment is, is group and learning Mm -hmm. in a group or just Mm -hmm. participating in a group. So Mm -hmm. those assessments really do kind of look at that where a lot of the times our speech therapy ones don't. And then you're kind of, oh, I think they'd benefit from a group goal. I don't know. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And the nice thing about the VB map is it has some other additional assessments that you can layer on top. You know, there's a barriers assessment for behavior and then there's a transition assessment, which really helps you identify the best environment to start teaching in, um, in terms of restriction, you know, and that's really helpful. And then you can repeat those. Obviously you can really do them every six months. And that helps to see as this child's VB map standard scores kind of go up or overall scores go up, Mm -hmm. the barrier scores start to come down. And then that lessens their, you know, where they should be in terms of transitioning between the intensity of the intervention. And so that's a, it's a real comprehensive sort of, it's a roadmap. It'll, it really guides you in terms of building a curriculum for a kiddo. So that's, that's a nice component about that. It is. And I think that's probably really nice for any parent or professional who's listening for a kid who maybe is going from early intervention mm-hmm. into school-age Correct. services yes. because that there's this whole uh, set, uh, section on the VB map that's called barriers assessment. Yep. Um, there's a lot of good sections, but that one really kind of looks at, you know, what are potentially the student's barriers to learning, you know, in a mm-hmm. least restrictive environment. And so I think it really, we have used it when I worked down in Texas and I was an administrator, I used it more as a guide Correct. Um, because sometimes not all the team members really could agree on where the student was going to right. learn skills best. And so, yes. you know, to keep and sometimes things, that's teacher yeah. dependent, right? Yeah. So sometimes yeah. a kid could make a transition into a particular environment and we'd say, well, if the teacher's right, because that teacher has a really structured classroom and she does it this right. way and she does it that way. And, and so what's nice about this is that it's really an objective viewpoint is, is the child ready or not? Because as much as we might like, you know, Mrs. So-and-so, what if something happens and now we have a long-term substitute and the child wasn't really ready for that environment. You're hinging it on a person versus like their skill set. 
Right. And so I think that that it gives you a nice objective viewpoint as well. It is. Yeah, that's a good point. Very cool. Um, So you mentioned that you guys do a couple groups within your day. Could you talk to us th- about that a little bit? Because I think that's good for some people to kind of conceptualize a lot of people. I was actually just asked to be on a podcast from somewhere, uh, I think India, and they want oh. to ask me questions about, you know, what is ABA? How is ABA different than speech therapy? And how is my therapy that I'm using for ABA different than the early start Denver model? And I want to be like, well, newsflash, you know, I do all these things that are (laughs) child-led and natural environment teaching. But I think that everybody that doesn't really understand the science of ABA thinks that it's, you know, small edible reinforcement compliance training and sitting at a table. But I mean, that isn't what my therapy looks like. And I know it's not what yours is. So could you talk to us a little bit about those groups? Because I'm curious about that. It sounds interesting. Yeah, I think that you've really hit the nail on the head. You know, the science has incredibly evolved. And so what used to look very, you know, incredibly clinical and we are sitting at the teacher table and I ask you a question and if you get it right, I do. I provide you this little itty bitty, you know, quarter of a starburst that I've cut into squares kind of thing. And and that's just like, woo, we've come a ways, right? So for us, in the old traditional model, we would call it more of a teacher prompter model where we have one of our instructors sort of leading the group. So that's the teacher. And then our other behavior technicians really facilitate from behind. So we have the students and right now, particularly, especially because of COVID, but in any situation, small group, three to five kids, one person's giving the instruction. And then as the students are participating, if they're, you know, having a hard time sustaining attention, if they've missed a direction, if they're, you know, whatever, kind of distracted for a moment or whatever, some one of the other behavior therapists will sort of come in behind and sort of silently prompt and redirect. So that therapist isn't going to come over and say, Rose, I need you to, you know, do X, Y, Z and redeliver those directions. No, she'll signal to the teacher. The teacher will say, okay, eyes on paper. Here's where we're at. And that facilitating person will help guide that student or remove some distractions or do whatever to help recenter the focus that the child can more um, readily participate. So for us, we do several groups a day. Of course, we have our traditional you know, circle time because we do one in the morning, one in the afternoon. That goes over our calendar and we have a little story time where kids are getting used to you know, keeping their eyes again on the speaker in the front mm-hmm. of the room and answering questions about a story. But then we also have literacy centers and math centers and craft time. And we have, again, gross motor centers in our gym. And so those are all opportunities for our kiddos to really follow more of a group lead. And for our kids who aren't ready to be in a group of three to five, then we just pair them up to students. So we start small and then we incrementally increase. And we also make the length of the group dependent on the skill set of the student. So we may start for our kiddos who are new to that. Okay. Our story time at the carpet is going to be, you know, a very short story. So three to five minutes with two students, me as the lead teacher and one person behind ready to prompt. Where for our students who are more able to tolerate, we might be seven to 10 minutes on the carpet because we're doing a lot of interaction between, you know, asking questions or pointing out things that we see or participating in some way. And again, you know, having that facilitation more at a distance or whatever, and the kids really guiding that. One point of note that you said with like child, we, we call ours, you know, that we're a child-centered program, which is a little bit different than a Montessori program, which might be child-directed, where like kids can kind of pick and choose where yeah. they want to be and where they don't. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, kids with autism are like, oh, I love that. I want to do that program. <laughs> and yeah, I'm never right. going to do these things I don't like. Right. I'm only going to hang out at Legos, you know, where we say our program is child-centered. So again, our therapists through observation and through really getting to know our kids, we know what activities our kids love. 
And we use those for our language-based programs and our pre-academic programs and our joint readiness programs and those types of things so that we have their desire to want to participate and be with us. But then we've had those demands built in and embedded into those activities. But again, more likely that the child's going to be willing to participate because it's something that they want to do versus being like, sit at the table, we need to get this done. (laughs) I love so that. It's a little different. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's really great. And, you know, I think it's such a great way to analyze kind of the environment. And just, I would always get called out when I worked in Austin, uh, Texas, as an autism facilitator for students who were having trouble sitting during story time or morning mm-hmm. circle. And, mm-hmm. you know, we would really analyze, like, well, do they know that song? Do they know the wheels exactly. on the bus? Can they do yeah. the motions? You know, they're probably in OT potentially too. Yeah. How can we? embed this group instruction also into the individual therapy sessions. And I think what's so simplistic to think about just what you said is like, let's take a baseline of how long the student is able to participate in this particular group. Just Mm -hmm. because a student is not engaging right now, it just means they're not doing it yet. It doesn't mean that they're never going to be able to learn from group, that they're not going to enjoy that. They may not understand the expectations. It may be really overwhelming. Sometimes it's just exposure. Like you said, like they have not had the exposure of like what it means to come sit at circles, like, and what's going to happen during that activity. So just like, again, all of us, I always go back to that. Like, so I think we automatically think that if a person has any learning difference, that we've got to like totally shift this around and like, well, how do you think when you don't understand something, like just because you might not have a specific learning disability in reading, doesn't mean that you'd be able to read French if somebody put it in front of you. And so I always look at it from that perspective is that like, of course we want to accommodate for where their differences are because we don't want everything to be so challenging that they check out. But at the same time, I think the easiest way to come up with those accommodations is to say, well, how would you want this done if you weren't able to understand or how would you mm-hmm. want, how would you feel in a brand new environment? And that's how I feel about circle time. Like, how do you feel the first time you walk into a crowded room? Think of public speaking, right? How many yeah. people have a fear of public speaking before you right. get in front of a room? I mean, that's yeah. uncomfortable. Right. And so similarly, I think our kids go through that same thing. So sometimes it's just some exposure on a real mild platform first of coming mm-hmm. to the carpet when the other kids aren't there and sitting yes. down and doing a game or an activity that they love. That's the child-centered part in that environment multiple times so that when they come into circle time into this activity that's novel, they're already exposed to carpet, to the, you know, if it's sitting spots or chairs or cubes right. or whatever, and they have a positive experience that's related to the environment. See, I think that's what some people miss, or it's just hard mm-hmm. sometimes, I think more so in a public school to analyze to that minutia. Mm-hmm. But I love mm-hmm. the idea too of the teacher prompter where, you know, I do that. I, I love group therapy still. Mm-hmm. I get to do group in a school and, um, you know, I'm the leader and then the yeah. other people are there just kind of silently prompting yes. because what the, what the key is, what we kind of hope for is that the kids are going to be able just to learn from the group and they're going to be right. able to take instruction from whoever the leader is. And I mm-hmm. think sometimes people People don't really analyze why are we prompting? Yeah. How are we prompting? The fact that we really want to be able to fade the prompting out yep. so that I'm just there doing a group and you yep. know everybody's in the room, right? In case I yep. need behavior support or somebody needs the bathroom or somebody's taking data. But that one step beyond to analyze it is right. just is right. really profound because we really want our kids just to be independent learners no matter mm-hmm. their age. And so we do have to exactly. kind of analyze it to that 
extent so that we can systematically fade ourselves out of the equation. Yeah. So we're just like, wow, it's yeah. normal time, you know? And yeah. I think so. families a lot will say like, I want my, as we're talking about the transition to kindergarten, like, I want my child to have a one-on-one. Oh. And while that's a safety net for us, for mm-hmm. sure, because again, especially if kids are having communication, still deficits right. or whatever, we want that person there to be able to help your child navigate 100%. But the issue is what ends up happening is a lot of times that person becomes like the interpreter, right? And so then the teacher gives a direction and then I Mm -hmm. re-give it. So I don't have to pay attention because I know Miss so-and-so is going to re-give me this direction when I actually need to do. And so then we add all these layers Mm -hmm. that are really unnecessary that strip away. Whereas if we were in a typical classroom and a kid missed a direction, he'd be looking around at his friends to be like, what's he doing? And so that's even something I like to say as we're training staff in public school, have the child direct their attention to what a friend is doing, to what a peer is doing around them, to help them cue back into the environment and or to raise a hand and say like, I miss that. You know, that's what we do. Yeah. Yeah, As adults, we do. I was thinking about going into like a new workout class or a new anything. I hadn't been to Orange Theory since COVID and I just went back. It's a whole new set of rules, right? The the way (laughs) you get in class and you take your card. And what did I do? It's just like, you know, I'm observing everybody else like, okay, what do I do now? Like, how do we do this? Trying to teach our kids to cue into that because for some of our students that we're working with that have trouble with engagement, I mean, that's going to be a skill that we probably have to directly teach. So I love that idea. It's those kind of little nuanced things Mm -hmm. that if we teach early and we directly focus on is Mm going to help our students so they're not prompt dependent and so Mm -hmm. that they have these strategies that we all use as adults, right? You know, that's exactly oh, right. Yeah, such great information. Yeah. I love it so much. <laughs> so I always end our podcast with one final question here. What is the most important piece of advice that you would want to pass along to parents or professionals? Oh, that's a loaded question, right? <laughs> I think one of the most important pieces of advice I give to families, honestly, is two. It's twofold. One, that this is a marathon; it is not a sprint. So you know, give yourself the grace to not be perfect out of the gate. You know, you don't have to do everything perfectly. We don't do that as parents, number one. Give yourself the grace to be on this journey with your child because it's okay. It's okay that they're going to make mistakes. It's okay that you're going to make mistakes. It's okay if you choose the wrong, but you know, it ends up not being a great therapy fit. You know, th- th- there's still time on our side and we can always make progress. So one of the things we found out about autism is that we can, no matter what age and what level, there's always progress that can be made. So, you know, not to get you down on yourself. And second part is actually communication. When your kiddos are little and you first get that diagnosis, I say, put yourself on narration mode, narrate everything that's happening around you. Mommy's unloading the dishwasher. I'm taking out the blue cup. Here comes the silverware. I'm putting this away where it's time to eat and put yourself on narration so that your kids are immersed in language. And that will really help them. I know a lot of the pointers with autism is like scale back your words because they can't keep up. Yes, that's true. When you're giving a direction, when they're learning a new skill, we can slow it down and, and be more concrete, but just in general in life, put yourself on narration so that they hear as much language as possible. And that will really help them over time to start to put those vocabulary pieces and identify things together. And plus it, it just feels good. So just, it just remember that <laughs> you are going to talk to your kids like you would if they didn't have a, have a learning, you know, autism or a learning disability or a communication disability, just talk to them like you would any of your other kiddos and, and watch how the journey un- unfolds. Because I think if we just keep that at the forefront of our mind, that there's still 
the same kiddo that you thought they were before you received that autism diagnosis. Nothing has changed in that 15 minutes from, you know, receiving diagnosis, pre-diagnosis to post-diagnosis. It makes everybody's journey a lot more happy and and we'll get there together with your providers. You'll get there together. And I love that so much because I actually was just reading a research article or a book or something. I'm always like reading, listening to something, but it was all about how when we do, when kids are very little and we do talk with them and they are autistic, that sometimes they they don't give us back what we would think is reinforcing. Like they're not taking mm-hmm. in the message or we're not mm-hmm. sure that we like it when we talk to them. So mm-hmm. I like this idea of continuing the narration because mm-hmm. we're just not sure, right? If your child yeah. is not yet speaking, we're not sure what they're taking in um, right. and, and, and just treat them like, yeah, like, you yeah. know, they you're haven't changed, like right? Yeah, since you got exactly that. exactly right. Like that's, you're still the expert on your right. child. You yeah. still know them best. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so getting a diagnosis doesn't change that. It might change the way they're, you know, educated Education's formulated or things right. like that. You might have more people involved than you, you <laughs> yeah. may have had otherwise, but honestly, at the end of the day, they're still your baby and you're still their mom or dad. And so I think we just, we move forward on that front. So that's great. Well, so where can people learn more about you and your work if they want to? Yeah, that? you can check us out on our social pages, but I direct you to our webpage first. And that's just www.thrive-elc.com. And of course you can find us on Facebook. If you look up Thrive Early Learning Center or Instagram, same thing. We're underscore Thrive ELC. And you can see all the lovely things that we're doing here and the messages we send out. I actually post frequently on my, our Facebook page, a lot of, um, you know, 25 to 30 minute little helpful tutorials on hot, what I call the hot topics of, of early intervention and of autism. So families can find some free training available there as well. Well, that's awesome. Well, thanks everybody so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe and write a review. We always love hearing from you. Remember to keep things fun and functional and I'll see you next time. Thanks, Jackie. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. Write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.